Have you ever had a really strange dream? I've had a lot of really strange dreams. Some of my dreams are like action movies. They're pretty cool. Uh, some are like horror movies. They're not quite so cool. Uh, probably the strangest dream I ever had involved a strawberry ice cream cone with an evil jack-o'-lantern face. I have absolutely no idea what that dream was about, if it was about anything, but it was really bizarre. Well, today we're going to look at a really strange dream, which is recorded in God's Word, the Bible. And this dream and its interpretation, its meaning, are going to teach us some important truths that we need to know about this day and age in which we live. Today we're going to learn some important things about where we should go uh, when we need to find guidance and advice for our lives. And we're going to learn some truths about the rise and fall of governments and the course of world history. We're going to learn about where we are in God's timeline today, and we're going to learn about some of what the future holds. And we're going to see all of that in the book of Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2 today, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to see that we need to know that the wisdom of this world system is unable to give you reliable personal and spiritual insight. Second, we're going to say, or we're going to learn that we need to seek wisdom and insight from the Lord and his word. And then third, we're going to receive some insight from God today. Specifically, we're going to learn that God is the Lord over history and he is guiding history to its conclusion. So that's where we're going today. But let me start by briefly recapping what we saw last week in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is a Jewish youth who has been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, the greatest and most powerful empire in the world in his day. And due to his background and intelligence, Daniel and his friends have been selected, uh, along with many other captive youths from other countries, to be trained to serve as an official in the kingdom of Babylon. And the training that Daniel and his friends received was designed to indoctrinate them, to sever their relationship to the Jewish people and the Lord, and it was designed to reprogram them to have a new loyalty to Babylon and to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and to the idols of Babylon. And Daniel and his friends endured this uh, training program of Babylon, but the program did not corrupt them. Because Daniel and his friends inwardly remained faithful and loyal to the Lord. And we saw at the end of last week's passage in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The king spoke with all the young men who had been taken captive. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel and his friends. Therefore, they stood before the king. Daniel and his friends received high office in Babylon. But we are people who have lived a long time in the world, and we might look at this story and say, how is it that four 17-year-olds maybe wind up being high officials and the most trusted servants and advisors to the most powerful king in the world? How can that be? Well, we're going to learn the answer to that today in Daniel chapter 2. And we begin this chapter now with our first point, which is that the wisdom of the world system is unable to give you reliable personal and spiritual insight. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we probably are quick to want to just kind of race through this and not think much about this timing. But this is really an important statement to understand the big story of the book of Daniel. Archaeology tells us that the Babylonians counted their king's first official year as beginning only on the first New Year's Day in which he was king. Everything before that was year zero. And history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had a long year zero, a fraction of the year in which he was king. He was king for nearly a whole year before the first New Year's Day. Now, today's passage takes place during Nebuchadnezzar's second official year on the throne, which was basically his third actual year on the throne. And this would correspond to the third of the three years that Daniel was being trained in Babylon. So this chapter is taking place when Daniel is still a student. He's preparing to graduate. All right, well, chapter 2, verse 1, let's see what happens. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. 
His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream and he believes that this dream is more than just a nightmare. He believes that this dream has a meaning, an interpretation which he needs to learn. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls together the wisest figures in his royal court. Now, I told you last week that Nebuchadnezzar was ethnically a Chaldean. And a big part of Chaldean culture involved occult practices, seeking omens and practicing astrology and magic. And so when Nebuchadnezzar calls together his wisest advisors, who are these advisors? They're people who use spells, people who practice astrology, the sages who knew arcane Chaldean wisdom. And Nebuchadnezzar calls these guys together because he's had this dream. Why? Well, ancient pagan people were fascinated with dreams. They thought that dreams contained prophetic communications from the gods. And so it was thought by pagans like Nebuchadnezzar, if you want to know what your dream means, you need some experts in the world of the occult to help you decipher the true meaning of your dream. Dream interpretation is exactly the sort of thing that these magicians would be used to being asked about. Now, what's interesting is that this time, Nebuchadnezzar's partly right. His dream is supernatural. It does have prophetic content. But this dream has come to him not from the idols of Babylon, but from the living God. But I would tell you that this is a rare occurrence. Only a handful of people across the whole Bible, the vast majority of whom are in the Old Testament, are recorded to have had a prophetic dream from God. Prophetic dreams are not a usual occurrence biblically. And unless we're claiming to be apostles or prophets, which none of us should be making those claims, we should not expect to have a prophetic dream ourselves. But this is what Nebuchadnezzar experiences. And so he looks to his wise men for help. Verse 4. Uh, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The wise men are initially confident that they'll be able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. If he tells them what he saw, they'll give him an interpretation. Maybe the interpretation comes from demonic magic that they're practicing. But my guess is that most of these magicians were con men. And they would just make up an interpretation that aligned with whatever political agenda they had. But they say, you tell us a dream, we'll, we'll give you an interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar's got some other ideas. Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's on to these guys. I mean, he's been king for nearly three years, and he's been putting up with these magicians who probably have been put in place by his dad. He's got some suspicions about them. So he says, hey, if you guys are really so wise and spiritual, how about this? You don't just tell me the interpretation, you tell me what I dreamed. If you get it right, I'll reward you, I'll make you rich. But literally, he says, if you get it wrong, I'll, I'll cut you limb from limb, and I'll turn your homes into latrines. That's pretty gross. But that's the thing about absolute monarchs. They can do whatever they like. Well, as you might imagine, the magicians don't like this much. And so over the next few verses, they protest and they demand that the king tell them his dream. They say, no human could do what you're asking, king. Nobody can get in your head and know your dreams. Only a god could do that. And as they complain, Nebuchadnezzar sees that they are stalling for time. They cannot reveal his dream to him. And so he concludes that they are deceitful frauds. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. All right, now, what should we take from these first 12 verses? Nebuchadnezzar, like a lot of important people, is surrounded by advisors. You know, our president has a cabinet for advice. And our presidential candidates have campaign staffers and advisors. 
CEOs have various officers and boards that they work with. Important people require counsel, and they need good counsel or else they risk making bad decisions. But friends, important people aren't the only folks who need counsel and advice. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. All of us, unless we are fools, thinking that we know everything, all of us at least occasionally look outside of ourselves for guidance or wisdom. But where do we look for advice? Who do we let give us guidance? Well, maybe like Nebuchadnezzar, we seek wisdom which seems to be spiritual or supernatural or occult. Surprisingly, in our day, horoscopes are back in, especially among young people. Uh, so are mediums, people who think they can speak to the dead. Or psychic readings are in. You know, I live down the street from a psychic. And in front of this psychic's little hut, and it's, it's basically a hut that she works in, but outside of it are a Corvette, a Porsche, and a Mercedes. Now, she got that money from somewhere. There's a market for psychic readings. There is an interest in the occult. But friends, the occult is not a good place to seek wisdom and insight. For starters, much which is called psychic or magical is just a con game. There are hucksters and frauds who have techniques how to read you and how to read what you're saying and, and how to manipulate you and, and get you to disclose information about yourself unwittingly. And then it looks like they have this insight into you. It's, it's, it's fraud. But even worse, some of these people do have supernatural power. But the spirits that stand behind them are not the Holy Spirit or spirits that come from God. Instead, they are empowered by evil demonic spirits that want to get a foothold in your life. Don't participate in this. God commanded Israel in Deuteronomy 18, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Indeed, Jesus says in Revelation 21 that the ultimate destiny of these sorts of people will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Psychics, mediums, and horoscopes aren't fun. They aren't harmless. They are spiritually hazardous. But it isn't simply against false spiritual wisdom that we're warned against here, I think. It's the wisdom of the world at large. We've said much about this over the last year. Our world, our culture has a way of doing things. A set of values and attitudes and methods that we are expected to be conformed to. But much that is called wisdom is not wisdom. Our world tells us that he who dies with the most toys wins. That is a lie. Because Hebrews 9 says it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. And friends, if you fail that judgment, I would tell you you have not won if you wind up in hell. Our world says you can live however you want. You should chase what looks good and what feels good and what makes you feel important. But Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, and its end is death. Romans 8, 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Our world tells us God is not real, but Psalm 14, 1 says, It is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. Our world tells us to conform and not rock the boat and not stand for Jesus. But James chapter 1, verse 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Believing, friends, the wisdom of this world is false. Do not take your cues about how to live your life from people who are going to hell. Or from our world system, which we're going to see in just a minute, is doomed to collapse and judgment. Nebuchadnezzar looked to foolish, false, wise men, and they failed to give him the advice he needed. And if we look to false spirituality... Or to the values, attitudes, and methods of the world system to gain direction for our lives, I promise you, you're only going to get lousy advice that's going to lead you to catastrophe. All right, well, where, where then will, will we or should we receive counsel? Well, that's what we see in our second point. Seek wisdom and insight from the Lord and from his word. Daniel chapter 2, verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to make good on his threat to kill the wise men. And he sends his executioners out to kill them. And on the hit list are Daniel and his friends. Why? Daniel and his friends are just students. They're, they weren't present for the discussion in the first 12 verses. Why should they be in danger? Well, back in chapter 1, you might remember, they were studying the literature of the Chaldeans. The Babylonian wise men were some of their teachers. And the king means to eliminate his wise men, root and stem, teachers and students. Now, this is very bad news for Daniel. He didn't know what was going on. But thankfully, the chief executioner is not overly zealous about his task. He's willing to let Daniel ask some questions, and he gives him some answers. And he's even willing to delay following his orders and let Daniel do something to try and improve this situation. That in this, the executioner is wise. Think about what a big deal it is today when the president fires a member of his cabinet. It's a pretty big deal. It's all over the news, right? Now, imagine the shakeup there would be if the entire cabinet was fired, jailed, and sentenced to death. That's basically what's happening here. This would be hugely tumultuous within the empire. And the chief executioner is in no hurry to cause this kind of tumult. And so he is open to seeing if Daniel can work this out. Verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now that Daniel's on the case, he does two things that the phony wise men didn't do. First, he asks Nebuchadnezzar for some time. And second, he indicates that he will meet the king's challenge. He will give the dream and the interpretation. Babylonian wise men didn't do either of these things. They didn't ask for time because it didn't matter how long they were given. They would never be able to come up with the king's dream. And they didn't claim that they could. But Daniel did. Why? Because Daniel's so much wiser than the wise men are? No. Because Daniel knows the only one who's able to disclose the king's dream and to give the true interpretation. Daniel knows the Lord. And Daniel has faith that the Lord will reveal these things to him. How? How is Daniel going to, to, to find these things out? How is the Lord going to communicate with Daniel? Is Daniel supposed to use the Babylonian methods that he has been learning? Is he going to learn about the dream by interpreting the stars? Or by cutting open an animal and reading its innards? Let's see what Daniel does to hear from God. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel doesn't follow what he's been learning in Babylonian school. He goes home, and he gets his believing friends together. He tells them what's going on, and he says, guys, let's pray. That's not what they learned in Babylonian school, but that's the Lord's way. And so they prayed, and they prayed fervently because their lives were hanging in the balance. And as James tells us, the fervent prayer of righteous people accomplishes much. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God answers the prayer. Back in chapter 1, we were told that God gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. This is what that looks like. Daniel didn't get a superpower. He's not a comic book figure. But God has, has made it such that he will answer Daniel's prayers about dreams. Now, this is a very rare thing. In the whole Bible, only Daniel and one other figure from the Old Testament, Joseph, seem to have had this divine empowerment. This is not a spiritual gift found in the New Testament. It's never described there. We should not think that we have this power. We should not believe people that tell us they can interpret our dreams today. All right, but... Let's get back to the story. Now, I want you to put yourself in Daniel's place for a minute. Imagine you're Daniel, and your life hangs in the balance, and you need to know this mystery, and you pray, and God reveals it to you. What do you do? You run right down the street to the king's palace, and you say, Hey, king, here it is, and you save your life, right? That's not what Daniel did. After having his prayer answered, the first thing Daniel did was he thanked the Lord. Verse 19, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. 
to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. This is the heart of the chapter. God knows everything, including all the hidden things, the things nobody else knows. God is all-knowing and all-wise, and God is willing to reveal some of what he knows to his people. We see this in the New Testament, right? The Apostle Paul often says that his teaching involved declaring mysteries, truths which had never been revealed before, uh, but which now God has disclosed. Truths like Ephesians 3, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Or mystery in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some people will live until the resurrection. These truths were hidden in the past, but now God has revealed them. And that's what happens here. God has revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in doing so, we'll see in a moment that God has disclosed the course of history. God has shared his wisdom with Daniel. God is sovereign over everything that happens, especially the things that happen on the top levels of government. Because God is everlasting, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and God is all-wise. And so, friends, if we need wisdom, who better to turn to than the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is all wise. This is who we need to trust our lives and our futures to. Nothing else in this world is stable, but the Lord is a fortress of faithfulness and certainty. I want to say three things to you today about why we should look to the Lord for true wisdom. First, you need to know that Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you really want wisdom about who you are and about who you could be and about how you should live and God's plan for your life, you've got to start by looking to the Lord and not by looking to the Lord as a genie who will give you what you want, not by looking to the Lord as a psychic friend to tell you what to do. True wisdom belongs with the true knowledge of God, the true fear of God, seeing God as a mighty, awesome master whom we must serve with reverence. He is not simply a powerful friend to exploit. And how do we begin to truly know God? In John 14, one of Jesus' disciples says, show us the Father. He wants to know God better. What does Jesus say to him? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know God, that begins with knowing Jesus, God the Son who became a human. And that involves trusting, entrusting yourself and your eternal destiny to the work that Jesus has performed on your behalf. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared. True wisdom begins with turning from our lives of sin and entrusting ourselves to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. You say, well, I have trusted Jesus. How then should I live? How, how then should I gain wisdom? Let me point you to two passages about how God's people are to gain wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. This is a promise. If you're in a tough situation and you need wisdom, ask God in faith. Ask him expecting he will give you the wisdom that you need. And he promises that he will. That's what Daniel and his friends did. They prayed to God for wisdom, and God gave it to them. Pray for wisdom. The second thing I want you to see is from Isaiah chapter 8. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words in verse 19. He's speaking about his culture, and he says that in the culture there's this saying, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. And Isaiah says, should not a people inquire of their God? To the teaching and to the testimony. In Isaiah's day, God's people were acting like unbelievers. They were seeking wisdom from psychics and mediums. And Isaiah says, what is that? God's people should get their wisdom from their God. Look to his word. Christian, get your wisdom from reading the Bible. Don't look to the false spirituality of the wisdom of this world. 
We have access to the wisdom of the all-wise God through his word and through prayer. That's where we need to go for wisdom for our lives. And that's what Daniel did. And having obtained wisdom, now he is ready to disclose what he has learned with the king. And we see that now in our third and longest point, which is God gives insight to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar here, and he gives insight to us in this passage as well. And the insight is this. God is the Lord over history. Daniel now knows the king's dream and its meaning, and he goes back to the chief executioner. And the executioner gets him an audience with King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose Babylonian name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel tells the king that the challenge the king has posed is not a matter for wise men of any sort. And by saying this, I think Daniel's trying to get his teachers, the Babylonian wise men, off the hook. It's not their fault that they could not produce the king's dream. No wise man could have. Even Daniel goes on in verse 30 to say that his own knowledge of the king's dream had nothing to do with his own wisdom. Instead, Daniel says he has the solution only because there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And this God now speaks to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel about the future, about the latter days, the days of prophetic fulfillment. And Daniel begins by revealing in verse 29 that as Nebuchadnezzar lay in bed on the night of his dream, he'd been thinking about the future. And in this context, God gave him a prophetic dream. And this dream has two parts. First, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now the first part of this dream involves an image or a statue, the sort of thing that a pagan would bow down to. And this statue inspired fear and awe in Nebuchadnezzar. From head to toe, it was made of different substances. Its upper half was made of gold and silver, precious metals. Its lower half was made of bronze and iron, the metals used to manufacture weapons. And its feet were a mixture of iron with clay, the stuff of pottery, a very unstable foundation for this statue. That's the first part of the dream. This is then followed in verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces, and they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so entirely independent of the statue, this rock appears, and it is cut out, but it is not cut out by human hands. And this rock then strikes the statue on the feet. And the statue is not only toppled, it is obliterated. But the rock grows larger and larger, and it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Now, this is indeed a very strange dream. What does it mean? Well, Daniel tells us in verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. And he begins with the statue. Uh, in my reading, there are five distinct sections in this statue. And he begins interpreting at the top of the statue, the head of gold. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. All right, so the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire, the strongest nation on earth at this time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar probably liked this. We've seen in recent weeks that the Babylonians were quite arrogant. They revered their own power as if it was godlike. But Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar is not the strongest king in the world because of his own greatness or might. Rather, he enjoys the position he has because God has given it to him. 
God has given Nebuchadnezzar a unique empowerment. Any kingdom that went against him would fall before him. Any people he tried to subdue would become his subject. God gave him an unparalleled degree of power, authority, and glory. And the book of Jeremiah tells us why. Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument of judgment upon the sinful world of his day. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar subjugated and punished much of the known world at that time. And because of this divine empowerment, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. What of the rest of the statue? Well, verse 39, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. Next parts of this statue, the silver chest and arms, and the bronze torso and thighs, represent what will come after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel specifies that these other parts of the statue are the future. And they're not just the kings that will follow Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, these are distinct kingdoms that will arise and take Babylon's place as the supreme power over the world as they knew it, the Mediterranean world. Now, in this chapter, Daniel does not specifically identify who these future kingdoms will be. So there's some scholarly debate about which kingdoms fulfill this prophecy. But I think the historical record is pretty clear, as are the last chapters of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5, we'll see that Babylon was eventually overthrown by the Persian Empire in 539 BC. So Babylon gives way to Persia. The gold head gives way to the silver chest and arms. Now, Persia at its peak ruled an empire that stretched from eastern Greece to western India. It was a great empire. But Daniel says that Persia was inferior to Babylon. It's an interesting comment because Persia had a, more, had a lot more territory than Babylon did. It lasted a lot longer as an empire than Babylon did. And it was a lot kinder to the people of God than Babylon was. Persia was by no means inferior to Babylon in its morality or its might or its dominion. But Persia lacked one thing that Babylon had. Nebuchadnezzar had a divine mandate to conquer everything that he went against. God stood behind him in a way he did not stand behind Persia. And in that way, Persia is inferior to Babylon. So Persia, I think, is the chest and arms of silver. And eventually Persia would fall to Alexander the Great's Hellenistic or Greek Empire in 336 BC, an event predicted in Daniel chapter 8. Now, Greece was not as glorious an empire as Persia was, but it was more military-minded. Not the glitz of silver, but bronze, a metal used to make weapons. And Alexander ruled over a vast empire that stretched from Greece to western India. But his reign was very brief. It was only 13 years. And after he died, his empire was divided among lesser rulers who warred with each other. So Greece had a long empire, but it, it was fairly inferior uh, compared to what had come before it. It was a reduced and divided and, and messy state. The Greece, I think, is the torso and thighs of bronze. But even Greece's day in the sun would end. Verse 40. And there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Now by 30 BC, the last remnant of the Greek empire had been swallowed up by Rome, an empire which was morally inferior to all that had come before it, ruled with very few exceptions by shockingly perverse and evil men, an empire that had very little glitz, whose entire focus was on war and conquest. And the Lord describes them as being the kingdom of iron. Iron then was like uranium today. It was what you made the best and most powerful weapons out of. And that was what Rome was, the ultimate cruel, hard empire. And they dominated the known world. But even Rome gives way to something else. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, with some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So the iron legs of Rome give way to the feet of iron and clay. 
groom gets mixed with something. The Aramaic verb arav is used throughout this section. In verse 41, it's translated divided. In verse 43, it speaks of the kingdom being intermingled, like a marriage, although the word marriage does not actually appear in the Aramaic text. I think the point is this. The feet of iron and clay represent something that is a composite, a mixture, something that is not cohesive or whole. So to what does this refer? Well, we've interpreted the other parts of this statue by looking to the succession of great empires. Who conquered whom? And who followed whom? Rome conquered Greece, who conquered Persia, who conquered Babylon. All right, well, what followed Rome? Well, that's a hard question. Rome formally and permanently split into two empires in Anno Domini 395. The Western Empire fell to the Germans in 476. And the Germans who conquered Rome called themselves, or the, the chief of the, of the Germans who conquered Rome, called himself the Emperor of Rome. He wasn't really, but instead of saying, I have a new empire, he said, I am the continuation of the old. For its, for its part, the Eastern Empire lasted almost another thousand years. It fell to the Ottoman Empire in 1453. And yet the, con the conqueror of Constantinople, Mehmet II, an emperor in his own right, began also calling himself the Roman Emperor. You see, in one sense, Rome was never fully vanquished. Those who vanquished it appropriated for themselves the title Emperor of Rome. They did not seek to create new centers of glory. Rather, they wanted to continue basking in Rome's former glory. Even as time went on and people stopped claiming to be the Emperor of Rome, I would say the spirit of Rome endured. Its political institutions, its icons, its legacy. Rome is what every Western country has basically aspired to be for 1,500 years. Let me give you some examples. In the year 800, Charlemagne, king of the Franks, crowned himself as the Holy Roman Emperor. A thousand years later, Emperor Napoleon's army marched across Europe and his banners were underneath the standard of an eagle, just as the Roman legions had been, just as the Italian and Nazi armies of the 1940s would be. When the Europeans got together in 1957 to form what would become the European Union, they signed their treaty, the Treaty of Rome, on the Capitoline Hill, the political and religious center of ancient Rome. See, friends, Rome never dies. Its legacy endures. It has spawned many successors. Many countries long to remake Rome, to become Rome. Rome's influence lives on through Western civilization. The West perpetuates the iron of Rome. Might, strength, dominance, empire, imperialism, right? But it's never been able to cohere as Rome did. There is a brittleness and a transitoriness to every country which has had ascendancy in the West. The Holy Roman Empire ended. You know, at one time, Portugal and Spain were the great powers of the world. Holland was there too. Then France, you know, people laugh about France in war these days. They weren't laughing in the 1800s at least the first part of them. So was Germany, Germany was strong, Great Britain. Uh, the sun never sets on the British Empire, well it did. Now, many people have noted America doesn't seem to be in world prof or biblical prophecy in the end. The West has had many countries emerge into leadership for a time, none last. Western civilization is a mixture of the legacy of Rome with a fragility and a bitterness, or a brittleness rather. And where will it wind up? The feet of the statue culminate in toes. Ten toes, we would assume. And Daniel chapter 7, we'll see in a few weeks, we'll speak of the end of history involving a confederation of ten kings uh, from which the figure known as the Antichrist will emerge. And we'll talk about that more in a few weeks. But I think this is the interpretation of the dream of the statue. Um, it is a depiction of human political power from Daniel's time until the end of history as we know it. The succession of world empires. It sure looks strong and mighty, doesn't it? It sure looks tough, and yet its foundation is unstable and brittle. It sure looks glorious with that gold and silver, and yet it is on a downward decline. The statue speaks of decay and a downward trajectory, for each successive empire is inferior to what came before it. And while this project of human power and glory has been going on for thousands of years, friends, it is finite and its days are numbered. And that's what we see in the second part of this dream. The rock not cut with human hands obliterates the statue. 
And that rock grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Verse 44 says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Here's the idea. The statue, which represents human political power and empire and glory, it prevails now. But within this project of human power, no one country ever emerges as the final victor. Every country rises and falls. And in the end, the last of them will fall. And how will it fall? A different sort of kingdom will come. Not the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. A kingdom which is fundamentally unlike everything that came before it. Unlike the, the, the degradation of human power that we see in the statue, the kingdom of God will be glorious and resplendent. Unlike the transitoriness of human power, the kingdom of God will last forever. It will not be supplanted. It will not be replaced. And the kingdom of God will not be established in the same way that these other kingdoms were established. Through human effort and warfare and politics. God's kingdom is not implemented by man's effort or man's wisdom or scheming or fighting or voting. The kingdom of God will come in its fullness at the return of Jesus Christ. And he will subjugate the earth by his own power. Because he is the true king of kings. And when he comes, his reign will obliterate all that has come before it. Every vestige of human rebellion, every vestige of sinful rule will be totally obliterated. Every ounce of the might and the power and the glory of this rebellious world system will be gone. And in its place, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says the earth will be filled, as, uh, filled with the knowledge of the, of, the, of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Instead of the injustice and the violence of this world, Isaiah 2 says, In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. All the nations shall flow to it, saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In place of the wickedness of the rulers of this world, Isaiah 9 says, Of the increase of Christ's government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. It's not going to be corrupt politicians in charge of Jesus' kingdom. And then it will be true what Revelation 11:15 says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And ever. And so Daniel says in verse 44 A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This is the dream and its meaning. This is the divine insight into the future. And Nebuchadnezzar responds. Verse 46 Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar is in awe. He has heard the word of God. His dream has been revealed and explained. And he decides to try to honor God by honoring Daniel. And yes, it looks a bit pagan. It looks like he's worshiping Daniel. But I think he's trying to honor God. Now, I would tell you, I don't think that this means Nebuchadnezzar was saved. Many people today try to hold that he was. History, however, tells us that Nebuchadnezzar died an idolater and a polytheist. But in this moment... He recognized and offered grateful praise to the God who gave him true wisdom. For a moment, he sees that Yahweh is the true God, infinitely above all false idols. So Nebuchadnezzar honors and rewards Daniel and Daniel's friends and makes them the highest officers in Babylon. This is how they came to enjoy such high positions as such young men. And because of this experience, they will now be the king's most trusted advisors. 
Friends, Nebuchadnezzar rejoiced and he praised God when he heard God's true word of wisdom about history. And now we too have heard this word. And I think this is a timely word for us. At this moment, our society is very agitated because of COVID, because of racial division, because of rioting. And in the middle of all of this, we're in an election year. And I think politics is probably agitating people more than anything else. And having spoken with many of the people in this church and seeing what Christians are saying on TV and on social media, it's really clear that a lot of us are quite worried about what is going on in our society and what the future holds. But I think that this passage speaks to our time and our anxiety because God is the Lord of history. What is happening around us is of no surprise to him. Friends, this is part of his plan. Ephesians 1.11 says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in command. He is directing history. He is sovereignly directing what is happening around us. And he is sovereign over where things will go next. You know, in recent weeks, I've listened to our two presidential candidates. And in at least one thing, they both sound remarkably similar. They're both telling us that unless they are elected, the entire nation will be destroyed. But friends, I would tell you today that the fate of this nation is not in the hands of Donald Trump, and it is not in the hands of Joe Biden. It is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether Trump wins or Biden wins, I will tell you one thing. This nation will fall. Maybe in a year, maybe in a decade, maybe in a century, but it will fall because this nation, like every other nation, belongs to the realm of human political power and glory and wisdom. We are but a fraction of the regime represented by the statute. And yes, our country has done many good things. And yes, many of us love our country and we should be thankful for the benefits that we have in this country. And we should be good citizens of this country. But we must not forget that in the end, the statue is destroyed. It is dashed to pieces because it is rebellious and evil like every other nation in world history. One day this country will fall. Perhaps it will be succeeded by another country. Perhaps it will persist until the kingdom of Christ comes in its fullness. But one day America will be no more because the rock is coming, the rock which is cut out but not by human hands. The rock who comes to power not through human activity, but by the power of God. And his dominion and his kingdom will never end. Friends, we must know that this world is passing away and all that is in it is passing away. And we must not be con become consumed with clutching that which will not endure. We must not become anxious or despairing or obsessed or wrathful because of politics or the news around us. Because all that is is simply Christ moving the pieces on the board. We might not know what the next move will be. We might not know who will win in November. But I would tell you that no matter who wins, Romans 13:1 says, the governing authorities that exist have been instituted by God. God's will shall be done for our nation, whether for our nation's good or ill. And no matter what politicians or pundits tell us, we cannot know with certainty what the future holds beyond what God has revealed in his word. The talking heads on TV are not a reliable source of wisdom. Perhaps our candidates are right, and the end of our country is around the corner. Maybe we'll be around another thousand years. We may not know, but God knows. And he is at work. And he is moving all things towards the consummation when Christ will triumph and reign forever. Now, I would tell you, this is not good news for those of you who do not know Jesus in a saving way. Because your hope is bound up in this world. And that means you are destined for disappointment and ruin when the things of this world are brought to nothing. The truth that Christ is coming is the truth that judgment is coming upon you and your sin unless you seek refuge in Jesus. But if you know Jesus today, then I want you to be encouraged. Because we have the promise of Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. Whatever happens will work for our good. Now, we may not like what happens here and now, but facing and enduring whatever is to come will increasingly conform us to Christ's likeness. It will make us more like him. And that is preparation for eternity. That is the good that God promises to do to us. And that is what he will do. Perhaps in our lifetimes, we will see the end of our nation. 
Christians have seen that over the last 2,000 years when their countries have gone down. Perhaps we will live to see a season of revival and renewal in our nation. We cannot know. But if you know Christ, then I want you to know this. In the end, we will eternally live under the reign of King Jesus. And that will be better than we could ever imagine. One day we will fear no more elections, no more disorder, no more pandemics, no more injustice, no more rioting. There will be no more candidates, no more campaigns, no more debates, no more lies, no more recounts. One day we will live in perfect peace and freedom and joy with our dear Savior. So friends, today I want you to be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you give your mind to. Keep your mind on the things above and not on the things below. Don't just internalize whatever a politician or your favorite pundit or your social media friend or your conspiratorial thinking best friend tells you. Seek the wisdom from above. Pray for God's wisdom. Read God's word and obey it. And remember the big picture. Remember where history is headed. When Nebuchadnezzar heard these things, he praised God. Can we praise God today because he is sovereign over history? Can we rejoice because he is at work in this world, moving it towards his eventual victory? Let this put you in awe, friends. All of this was predicted thousands of years ago, and he is bringing it to pass. I'm going to finish by reading from Romans and Isaiah, and let's listen to this, and then we'll worship God in song. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The Lord says in Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Let's pray.